0: Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. The Contrarians is brought to you by Smarks Like Us Clothing and Avnio Films. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis, and at Avnio. that's O-V-N-I-O. Yes, this is the main theme from Star Wars Episode 3. Why, you might ask? It's simple. It's the best film in the franchise. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex. I'm joined always by my co-host, Julio. Julio, how are you doing today?
1: I am so excited <laughs> because, guys, I don't know if you've been following the drama on the episodes leading to this one, but I've been constantly just trying to break Alex's will and get him to agree to do Elizabethtown. I don't know, it's a movie that we both love, and he I, I could tell that he was afraid... Uh, of defending it. I literally
0: think since the first episode this has been a reoccurring thing where you've been trying to get get us to do Elizabeth Town. Sometimes while we're recording,
1: sometimes after we've done recording. And luckily Destiny helped me, gave me that little push with uh, the release of Aloha a couple weeks ago and people complaining about how terrible it is. And I think that's the perfect moment to look back at the last time Cameron Crowe uh, achieved brilliance. I think all those naysayers, uh, all those people that hated Elizabeth Town back in the day should give it a rewatch now and really appreciate the genius there. I have a, I have a few quotes for you. Nick Shager, or Shager from uh, the properly named Lessons of Darkness says, <laughs> An excruciatingly narcissistic nostalgia trip saturated with writer-director Cameron Crowe's favorite tunes. Robin Clifford from Reeling Reviews said, I came out of Elizabethtown with one question. What's the point? I still haven't figured that out. Thomas DeLapa, from Boulder Weekly got a little offensive and said, an off-the-map disaster, the New Orleans of 2005 movies. Jesus. That is fucked up. (laughs) That is awful. That crossed the line. (laughs) And just to end on a slightly more civil note, urban cinephile critics from Urban Cinephile said, Cameron Crowe's heart is in the right place, but Elizabeth Town probably works better as a tribute to his late father than the uplifting romantic comedy to which he aspires. What do you think, Alex?
0: Well... I think they don't quite understand what they saw. I think the last one kind of was close to what we were feeling here. As Yes, after all that, we are here at Elizabethtown, the 2005 Cameron Crowe romantic tragic comedy. It's missing the word epic in front of it. (laughs) We begin with our main character, Drew Baylor, who is played by the the fallen-off-the-grid Orlando Bloom. His
1: last great performance.
0: And only, really. (laughs) He peaked. He did. He peaked on the phone. He
1: peaked on the phone. He peaked on Elizabeth Town.
0: So Drew Baylor works for Mercury Worldwide, I believe is the company's name, who, are they just shoe specialists? They're the biggest
1: shoe company in the world. Apparently.
0: Drew was like a young prodigy who was thought to be the future of the company in designing, and he designed a shoe called the Space Matic. what was it? Spodmatic? I so, don't know.
1: They never really say it out loud.
0: Long story short, the movie begins with all these shoes being recalled, and we quickly find out it costs the company upwards of a billion dollars. He begins the movie with his narration describing the difference between a failure and fiasco, and he deems himself a fiasco. It's kind of prophetic of Cameron Crowe's career,
1: where I, I'll box office-wise, I guess you could say that Elizabeth Town is a failure, and mm. Aloha is a fiasco. Is a fiasco. <laughs>
0: He explains the difference between a failure and a fiasco is a fiasco becomes a legend and is something that's passed down for how bad it is for decades and generations to come. Quickly things just go from bad to worse for young Drew as he's taken to the office of Phil the president of Mercury Worldwide played by Alec Baldwin. Talk about someone who commands the screen with just what little time he's given. He comes in for
1: five minutes, knocks out of the park, walks out of the movie.
0: He informs Drew that it was $972 million but let's just go ahead and call it a cool bill that was lost because of this shoe. And without saying the words you're fired, he lays him off.
1: Yeah, not even that he tells him, well, but before we lay off I need you to go and talk to this reporter and basically take the blame.
0: Yeah, which he does. And, you know, right away, we, our hearts are already with Drew, not really knowing the full extent of what's going on. We're not explaining exactly what's wrong with the shoe.
1: We just know it failed. But you don't need to know because I think that uh, eventually, if you live long enough, you experience failure. Mm-hmm. In the end, the details don't matter. What matters is that you're fucked. <laughs> and that's basically this whole prologue, the, the opening sequence, is just about uh, Drew Baylor failing hard. This is a, a very complex movie. I mean, I wasn't kidding when I, when I said it was epic. There, it tackles so many things. Of course, it doesn't surprise me that went, so many of those things went over people's heads when it was first released. And one of the things is just the price of success or the price of reaching for success so high. Yeah. The, the harder you try, the, the more ambitious you are, then the harder you fall. the the bigger the risk.
0: And he has the very um, wise beyond his years line of saying that success is the only god that people really worship anymore.
1: Yes. Great line and it's like the first five minutes of the movie topped by Alec Baldwin's exit line almost. I don't
0: know if it's the last thing he says
1: but it's the most memorable out of the many memorable things he says.
0: He says I cry a lot lately. (laughs) So, we get the hinkling that, you know, things with Drew's mental state aren't that good because he alludes to wanting to jump out of a chopper that he flies to the Mercury Worldwide headquarters, and I think he just takes the even more barbaric approach. As soon as he gets back to his apartment, he packs up all his shit, and he has decided that he is going to kill himself, and he does so by rigging up, like, an elliptical bike, a workout bicycle, with a giant butcher knife in the middle so the intended target will be, as he pedals, it will stab him in the heart repeatedly.
1: It's very ingenious, and I think it's meant to show... That Drews is a man that he's beyond his time. He's a genius. You know, he didn't. He couldn't just kill himself. He had to kill himself and make a statement. Mm-hmm. In, look, Alec Baldwin. I, I even came up with an ingenious way of killing myself.
0: And it's uh, poetic as well. Like it ripped it hard out of his chest. Oh yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Orlando Bloom got so much flack for his performance in this movie, but I think that he really captures a man that's at the bottom of the barrel. Mm-hmm. His, his hot girlfriend breaks up with him played by Jessica Biel yes another powerful cameo five minutes in the movie but she makes an impression I'm sorry guys but next time that you're grieving the loss of your job and the loss of your girlfriend and then on everything else that he grieves in this movie take a look at the mirror let us know if you look better than Orlando Bloom does in this movie
0: (laughs) So yeah, he has that real nice high-rise apartment, but in the thought of killing himself, just moves all his shit, his TV, his computer, all his nice suits and clothes into just a dumpster outside. Right before he, I guess not pulls the trigger, but pedals the bike, his phone won't stop ringing him to the point of just infuriating him. He goes and picks it up. On the other line is his sister, Heather, played by Judy Greer, who informs him that his dad has died. So, young Drew's not having a good day.
1: Nope, just keeps getting worse and worse. Mitch, that's his dad's name, he's basically going to be this presence throughout the movie and I think this is the key that critics and most of the audience missed all the way back in uh, 2005 Mm
0: -hmm. probably because the New Orleans 2005 yes
1: (laughs) probably because it was not advertised in the movie there's nothing in the movie that would nudge you into this reading Mm -hmm. but once you think about it it really becomes clear and it makes it gives the movie this entire uh, new tone Mitch was not a good father Nobody says it out loud, but once you read the signs, that makes it clear Mitch was an awful person. And his family, the family that Drew's gonna have to go visit in the, uh, in the course of the movie, they're horrible people. They're like a cult.
0: Like very superficial, non. Cult is a good word. Cult, yeah. And Drew,
1: his mother, played by Susan Sarandon, and his sister escaped the cult. They basically took Mitch out of the cult and moved out to California. And they're
0: ostracized for that.
1: Uh, yes, uh, because of course they they took Mitch away. Even uh, though they
0: don't live in California anymore, they live in Oregon, as, as we're reminded of.
1: Yeah, but they just won't let that go. So here's the thing: like Mitch, Mitch's death it affects Drew in a very complex way because yeah, he, it's his father, and and he's grieving for him. But it's also this exhilaration that he won't accept. You know, that bastard is dead. The mm-hmm. guy that because they might have left the cult, but he's still you can tell that he was still psychologically abusing them through, you know, the time that they spent together. So uh, as you go through the movie, there's all these signs that obviously people missed.
0: And yes, as you mentioned, Susan Sarandon plays his mother, Holly, and she just really doesn't know how to take it. She's kind of, I think it just made her snap, and she doesn't really know how to respond to it. But we get more into that as the movie progresses, to this point where Drew kind of just gets off the bike, pulls up his big boy pants, and realizes that he has to take responsibility because he's the man of the family now. So he is going to go to Elizabethtown, Kentucky, where his father, Mitch, has died, He's going to take his favorite blue suit, bury him out there, and he says in narration that he's just going to kill himself when he gets back. He puts the suicide on hold.
1: Among other things, this movie is uh, the the story of how Drew gets to regain respect for life. Mm -hmm. He gets a new lease in life through these experiences. You know, it's a tale of the survivor.
0: Step one in regaining his joy of life, he is on a red-eye flight to Louisville, Kentucky, when we are introduced to the, I guess, love interest of the film, The Ray of Sunshine. The Ray of Sunshine the overbearing, at times, obnoxious ray of sunshine. Claire Colburn, played by Kirsten Dunst.
1: What well, you could call a desperate performance by Kirsten Dunst. <laughs> but that fits in. There's something else that that people just missed completely. And I mentioned to you, I had missed it until this time. I've seen this movie plenty of times, but this time is the first time it clicked. That she is crying for help. Every The movie sells it to you like she's there to help him. Mm-hmm. She's there to... Get him through this difficult time in his life, but no, that's not really it. She is desperate to get herself out of this this mental breakdown she's having, and yeah. she latches onto him
0: like uh, a, the, the clingiest the, girlfriend you'd imagine. Yes,
1: but everybody's so preoccupied. Like the movie's so clever mm-hmm. in distracting you with 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 Mitchell's death and Orlando Bloom's failure as a as a shoemaker that. You don't really pay attention to the poor girl that's just disintegrating in mm-hmm. front of you. So, no, that is a very brave performance from <laughs> Christian Sons. Because there are times during the movie that you actually can see the cracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're paying attention, you just see that moment where the facade goes away and she stops smiling. And she has that, that like fraction of a second where she looks like a normal person. And that's really what the movie's about.
0: It's always the drunkest girl at the bar singing Who Let the Dogs Out on karaoke that you don't pay attention to. And in that case, this is Claire Colburn. We can't really tell where she's from because she has a southern accent that she drops and picks up throughout the movie with no real explanation. But I think that could just go into what you're saying. She has like an identity crisis going it's, on. It's
1: called a mental illness, Alex. And that's, that's just one of the most obvious clues the movie's giving you that this girl's not right in the head.
0: So she moves Drew up to first class from coach because there's not really anybody on the plane. They start talking. He explains the situation to her in no uncertain terms. Doesn't really tell her de- his dad's dead or anything like that. Tells her where he's going. She draws him a map just right away and tells him how to get there and what he's going to need to do. Writes her phone number down on a business card for him. And then kind of just won't let him leave. When he gets off the plane. She's she's
1: asking for help. She's like, can you please tell me that I'm worth something, that I'm helping you? But Orlando Bloom is in a completely different planet there. Mm-hmm. He's thinking about his dad, so he, he can just barely mumble thank you and <laughs> barely acknowledge her presence there.
0: She is very insistent that he needs to take the 60B exit. She says it about 27 times as he's leaving the airport, where, wouldn't you know it, he wasn't paying fucking attention <laughs> and he doesn't find the 60B exit, which leads to, I think... You know, there's a lot of moments of acting genius throughout this, but I think we decreed that to be his Oscar moment where he has his breakdown in the car and just starts punching the steering wheel and the horn. No, he doesn't cry
1: because there's something that the movie makes a point of, which is that he doesn't cry.
0: It's the suicide thing. He is dead inside already. Exactly. He
1: can't cry until he's alive again.
0: Yeah. So Drew finally makes it to Elizabethtown, and this is kind of what you're talking about, like the cult-type atmosphere. Yes. Because every one of the townspeople are just pointing him where to go. They have
1: signs everywhere commemorating his dad's passing. Mm-hmm. It's like the entire town revolved around him.
0: It's like they're getting ready for the Viking funeral to just push him out into the local creek and set it ablaze.
1: Everybody knows him. Everybody waves at him. It's just so creepy.
0: Yeah. Well, they all think at this point that he's a giant success too because news hasn't broken about the disaster that was the shoe. So he is somewhat of a local celebrity, but they still resent him because he moved out of Elizabethtown.
1: Yeah, I, I could tell. Also, especially the older people, they're obviously waiting to induct him again. Mm-hmm. Like he's coming back, and he's never leaving.
0: It's like the Wicker Man. Yes. <laughs> So as soon as Drew pulls up, we are introduced to Cousin Jesse, played by a Contrarians favorite. Is this the first time? No, because
1: he was in that Family Stone.
0: Oh, of course, yes. So (laughs) a Contrarians favorite, Uh, we have Paul Schneider returning as Cousin Jesse, Brad from the Family Stone. Yeah, how could I forget? Yes, he
1: is a real ray of sunshine here, Mm -hmm. and he plays a pivotal role. Basically, Jesse is is kind of a dark mirror version of uh, of Drew. He is what happens if somebody if Drew hadn't been able to escape his father's family, if, mm-hmm. if Mitchell had not moved to California with, with his family, but instead had stayed there in Elizabethtown, because as, as much of a failure as Drew feels he is right now, Jesse is a bigger loser.
0: He's got this just out-of-control little kid named Samson who won't listen or take any instruction. He has some really crazy sideburns, and he just lives off the moderate success his band Ruckus had. You know? A
1: long time ago.
0: Yeah. That aside, he's looking pretty pimp. And it was very good to have him back. At this point, you know, everything was so sad and demure, so to see him, you know, I, I couldn't help but you smile. You know,
1: good times are coming. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. So for the first time, he sees his dad's dead body, Drew, that is, and he kind of just stares at it doesn't really know how to react to it, which I think I am fortunate enough to not have lost uh, anyone in my immediate family yet, but I think that that's a real scene. I don't think he really would know how to react upon that.
1: Yeah, it, it, everybody takes grief uh, a different way. Sometimes you just stare and uh and move around it's also he's just thrown off by how much people know about him when he walks in there are all these people that he has never met before or that he hasn't seen since he was a kid but you know with that creepy cult atmosphere everybody knows every single thing he's done like their kids coming up to him and talking to him about the shoe and wanting him to like sign autographs and he's so confused that he keeps offering people condolences when they should be offering Offer him, him to him
0: as uh cousin jesse tells him condolences are an incoming thing they're not, you're not you don't <laughs> give them out we head back to the family house the Baylor's house and we are introduced to the family and everyone it looks like everyone from the fucking town is there and they are all there they're cooking and there's kids running around and Paula Dean is there. That's a
1: red flag. If he, I don't know why he didn't leave right then. <laughs> yeah. he we noticed that he noticed that Paula Dean
0: was there. Paula Dean takes him aside and gives him the family history of the Baylors and the Conleys, and it's apparent right away there the tension and like the resentment towards his mother Holly for taking the family out of Elizabethtown because her picture isn't anywhere in there. Exactly, she's the one that got away. She's the one that took them away. We get a sidebar with cousin Jesse as his dad, the character Uncle Dale, played by Luton Wainwright of Undeclared and Judd Aptel fame, is just, you know, informing him that he needs to grow up and, uh, you know, you need to learn to discipline that boy and you can't be friends with your son. This is kind of the side life, like you were talking about. This is what Drew would be dealing with had he stayed in Elizabethtown.
1: Yeah, there's this thing uh, that I also think that Cameron Crowe is, is addressing, which is the hypocrisy of, of funerals and, and wakes and all the stuff, how you know as soon as somebody dies they become the greatest person ever mm-hmm. and then suddenly everybody's super nice about them and so critics and audiences i guess took it as oh this is meant to be all inspiring and and very inspirational about how about family and all stuff but no he's really just condemning that kind of attitude mm-hmm. people are just missing the joke which is Like I said, once you realize that Drew's father was a horrible person, it's even clearer that all these people are phonies. Mm -hmm. They have all these great stories to tell about him, but you'll notice that throughout the movie, they're not really... They start telling the story, but they never finish it. There's never really an actual good thing that they have to say about him.
0: They're more worried about their hash brown casserole.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then in the moments when they don't think that anybody's looking, that's when they show their true colors. Like his uncle chastising Jesse for just not having a traditional way of parenting. Mm-hmm. As soon as he tries to show some sort of free will and try to break away from the mold, he gets yelled at.
0: Train came off the tracks a little bit for me here, but you, you, you rang me back in. I really felt like Orlando Bloom was acting like he was in a different movie than everyone else at this point, but you think that was by design? I
1: think that's by design. He's not one of them. He hasn't been brainwashed since he was a kid. He, he's a real person. He, can't, he has trouble reacting with smiles and being quirky when his father has died. Mm-hmm. Everybody else is acting like they're in a movie. And Orlando Bloom is acting like he's a, a, in a documentary. And that's great. That is that is amazing.
0: So we get a really nice scene between Jesse and Drew as he goes back home with Jesse and visits with them. And I think they share a glass of uh, scotch or whiskey or something. But this is where it just gets even sadder with Jesse. And I think this is where it really resonates with Drew, what his life would be like if he had stayed. Because all Jesse wants to talk about is the time they almost opened for Leonard Skinner with only two of the original band members.
1: He's not even in the poster until the very... He's like this tiny afterthought. It's like the thing that they... But it, after the poster had already been printed, they just added like a sticker at the end and then it turns out that they didn't even play. Mm-hmm is really sad.
0: We do see a big poster of Ruckus with their their band's motto was tried, true, fried, and blue. I thought that was pretty fantastic.
1: (laughs) It's it's a shame. Imagine what JC could have accomplished if he had left Elizabeth Town.
0: But instead he's in his house and just ignoring his kid who's screaming and Drew's just kind of like, Jesus Christ, what's going on here? This could have been me. It could have. But fortunately for him, he goes to the Brown Hotel, which I think is the nicest joint in town. He gets a nice suite. Turns out, though, the wedding is being hosted there. Chuck and Cindy are getting married. He stays on the same floor as everyone there for the wedding but he gets to pay for it with his company card.
1: Uh, I think that uh, Alec Alec Baldwin was not thinking ahead. He was
0: he too busy trying to screw him
1: over with the interview and didn't think to cancel the card.
0: <laughs> he tells him to let a rip on the card. He gets up to his room and it's just a madhouse with this wedding going on. Drew is still trying to cope with all his feelings and then to be surrounded by all this happiness. Do you think that was good for him at that point? I,
1: I think that he's dealing with a lot. Again, there's so much that he's going through as far as dealing with the loss of a father that he obviously had a connection with... But that obviously was also a bad influence on him. Mm-hmm. There's that whole, should I be happy? Should I be sad? And and, and it, he has all these contradictory signs around him. He has the family that's telling him stories that are obviously not true, and then he has his mom losing it on the other end. He, he just needs somebody to talk to, and that's that rings true for anyone that would be in that position. Mm-hmm. And sadly nobody will return his calls, and then everybody returns his calls at once.
0: It's just a classic mix-up, you know, and as much as dark as this movie has gotten, with some, you know, light sprinkles throughout it, this was really just a really fun and whimsical scene, I thought.
1: I love it. Not many people can juggle three phone conversations at once in the mm-hmm. movie, but Cameron Crowe showed here that
0: he could. Uh, especially three conversations with women, if you know what I mean.
1: So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> his sister asked, have you cried yet? And he said, a little, but you know, I think he's just kind of going along for the bit. But his mother, Holly, is just going in sane she's cooking and keeps talking about wanting to learn tap dancing and she is just coping with it in the worst way possible i think or the best way possible
1: see here's the thing she's older Mm -hmm. drew's drew's handling it the way that a man in his what is that late 20s early 30s Mm -hmm. you know that ambiguous orlando bloom age (laughs) he's still that age i don't know how old he is now but (laughs) it's the same age as when he was in elizabeth town it's very confusing worse this woman uh susan sarandon she's lived with mitchell longer And for better or for worse, he was a more defining influence in her life. And suddenly, she has this freedom. Drew, yeah, he was was his father. But you can tell that at some point, once he became his own man he doesn't he, he stopped spending holidays with his family he, there's a moment where he asks his sister was that fun and she said oh yeah especially the last few years when you were not with us yeah once he got busy he he just stopped seeing his dad so he's a little more removed from that but Susan Sarandon has been there she was married to this guy to this tyrant who apparently never let her learn anything and now he's gone and she has the whole world is at her disposal. She can do whatever she wants. She just doesn't know where to start. Mm-hmm. Should I learn how to how to unclog the toilet? Or should I learn tap dancing? Or should I learn how to fix a car? And she's like, fuck it, I'll do everything at once. It's heartwarming and very smartly put aside because they don't want you to get distracted from Drew's journey.
0: And then Judy Greer, Heather, his sister, is just, I think, just annoying everyone with the way she's handling it.
1: Yeah, she I think she's that portrait of the person that just, they can't handle grief. The person that you have... Problems, like feeling sorry for. Mm-hmm. There's one of them uh, at every funeral, <laughs> the, the one that you just want to get away from.
0: So we get our final appearance of Jessica Biel in the scene as she, you know, puts the kibosh finally on the relationship with Drew, and just he says it was real and it was good and it was really good, but this is goodbye. She's out of the picture, but we enter in with Claire. Drew gets on the line with her, he picks her up and called her, when no one else would answer, so he just wanted, you know, someone to talk to. And boy, does he get it, because they talk from pillar to post, night to morning.
1: It really hit me hard. Alex, do you remember the good old days before texting? The only way you could communicate with a girl was just calling her.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, assuming you were not living together or, <laughs> or at the same space at the time, the only thing you could do was just... Call them and those conversations. I mean, there's something magical that's been lost by texting. Yes. And I am so happy that Cameron Crowe was able to capture that before, because 2005, I don't think that there were texting was not what it is now. Yeah, There were no emojis, there was no Snapchat, there was none of that. It was just two people on the phone. It really means a lot more. One of my complaints now, uh, listen, I'm as guilty of it as anyone. I hate talking on the phone. Yeah. Because it requires concentration. You can't really fuck around that much when you're on the phone. You can fuck around when you're texting, because yeah. you can be doing a thousand things. When you're on the phone, you need to pay a lot more attention, which means that it means more. Mm-hmm. There's this back and forth, and the fact that this... This couple, Drew and uh, uh, Claire. Claire, spend the whole night on the phone. It really that tells you everything you need to know about them. And they are doing things. I love the shot where he is like peeing and then he gets the phone out because guys, he's a you've gentleman. Been there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> She's packing for her trip the next day. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They... Taking a bath, he uh, sneaks out of the room to go steal some beer from the wedding party when we meet Chuck, the Chuck. the husband to be.
1: Chuck, what do you think about Chuck?
0: I think Chuck, he, he's a drunkard, first <laughs> off. He seems to be just perpetually sauced throughout the, the film. He, uh, he's about to get married, to be he, fair. He is. But, you know, he seems to be just the the random stranger. The, you can always depend on the kindness of strangers. He's there... For Drew, because Drew just, you know, matter-of-factly lets it slip that his dad died, and he's there for him.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll I, I, I take it a step further, and I I think that Chuck, because you don't see much of Chuck, you see him in that one scene, that's the one meaningful interaction ha- he has with anyone, and then yeah. after that, you see him walk in the background a couple times. And
0: he always, whenever he sees Drew, he acknowledges him. Oh, yeah, yeah, he gives him, like, the... He gives the, him the, the point. The
1: point. I think Chuck is the audience. I think Chuck is us. <laughs> Chuck is that happy bastard that has nothing tragic going on in his life right now. He's...
0: He represents the antithesis of where Drew is, because exactly. he's about to like experience life for the first time. Where Drew's just at the bottom. Yeah,
1: he's getting married. He, he, everybody. He's the center of attention in a good way. He has friends and family and booze. <laughs> it, it, it's it, he's spending the weekend doing something awesome, whereas Drew's spending the weekend getting his dad ready to be cremated. So he is us. He is the audience that went to see a movie and they're happy, and now you you just want to hug her around the Bloom and Cameron Crowe's smart enough to know that you need some sort of what do you call it? Not a substitute. Um, Embodiment. No, that was that terrible movie with Bruce Willis. Um, where Unbreakable. He, no, Unbreakable was a great movie. The movie where he like surrogate. Says, yes, you <laughs> surrogates. Need, you need an audience surrogate on screen to hug Orlando Bloom, <laughs> and so that's Chuck. Chuck is our surrogate. Okay. He, he hugs him. He hugs him hard. The bottles that they have in the ropes clink, and then he tells him anything you need. And that's when. In theory, if the world was a kinder place, that's where the movie would have completely hooked you. Because you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm there. I'm, there I'm Chuck, you. every
0: man. Yeah, mm. I'm
1: Chuck. But instead, well, you know, things went a different way. I turned on the movie.
0: The talk between Claire and Drew continues until Claire just says, you know, I have to be up in two hours. It would probably be better to stay awake at this point. We're 45 minutes away from each other. Let's just meet in the middle and watch the sunrise together. Which, I think, is this your favorite part of the film? No, no, no. My favorite is, is, is Freebird. But oh, okay. uh
1: But no, this is this, is, uh, this is top three, I think. <laughs> top three, maybe top five. Uh, just because I think the punchline is, is great. They
0: uh, finally get together. They hang up their phones simultaneously. Cool clicking noise. And then they watch the sunrise, and there's just dead silence. And they say, we peeked on the phone. <laughs> yes,
1: classic line. Classic Cameron Crowe. It just speaks to the, the honesty and the purity of their love. That that's not the last you, they see of each other. Because mm-hmm. that could have been it. You know, that's, that's basically, they had a phone... A phone one-night stand. <laughs> a one-night phone stand? There you go. <laughs> but no, the, the story's not over. It's not even close to being over. It's, we're not, just getting started. Not at all.
0: No. We go to a scene of Drew arguing with Holly, his mother, on the phone about whether or not they want to go through with the cremation, and she's just too preoccupied, starting wanting to start to tap dance. Whereas now, I understand why that is, your theory. She just doesn't really care. He's gone, so do whatever with him.
1: There's not even that. She knows. She's She's too sweet to her son to really spell it out, but... Mitch deserves to burn. Mm-hmm. That's why she wants him cremated. That's worse Whereas everybody in the cult family, they want him buried at the family plot with yeah. all the other cult members and all the horrible things that have happened there. Things say in the family, but no, she wants him cremated and. and Take him back to Oregon. That is a conflict that she just obviously has no time for. She's just getting cremated and I don't really care. Yeah. What changes her mind a little bit is when she hears that... Uh, oh, what's his name? Bill Bunyan? Bill Banyan? Bill Banyan. Bunyan. Bunyan? <laughs> <laughs> played by awesome character actor Bruce McGillis, I think. Yeah. I don't know if you were ever a MacGyver fan. You might not be that old, Alex. <laughs> um, I am. Uh, he, he played MacGyver's best friend. Really? Uh, yeah. And He had a tick... Every, this was gimmick every episode. Every time that he lied, his his left eye or his right eye started like twitching. <laughs> so that was like huge source of comic relief. <laughs> um. Anyway, I always feel happy when I see him in a movie, he's a, he's in a lot of movies, he's he's a well-known actor, and anyway, when I saw him show up in Elizabeth Town, I knew that he was there for a reason, he wasn't just a random background character, he, he plays a part, he's, yeah. uh, I guess he has some sort of history as a con man. He's a
0: swindler of sorts.
1: He he screwed Mitchell out of a bunch of money, and so what Susan random hears that he's there planning the memorial or whatever. She yeah. tells Drew, we'll get him cremated and I'll be there. She realizes she needs to protect her son from, yeah. from these people.
0: He returns back to the Brown Hotel is walking through the lobby when Claire calls him and this, I think, is red flag number two. She, I guess, canceled or called in sick for the day at work and has just been stalking Drew all day, and she's just walking behind him in the hotel lobby.
1: Up till then, I guess you could kind of tell there was something off about Claire. Mm -hmm. But now, really, if you're paying, this is when you start being concerned for her mental health because there's a lot of her story that sounds so fake, and Drew's so lost in his grief that he doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. Because she has this this boyfriend in quotation marks Ben, uh, Ben, and and. The stories that she tells about why Ben's not there or why she's not connecting with Ben at the He goes time. to a
0: different school, like you wouldn't know him type of exactly, thing. Exactly,
1: yeah. It, 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 sounds, it sounds a little too convenient why he's not there uh, at all times and why her plans change. She was supposed to go to Hawaii where we get the awesome most meta moment ever. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's, she's saying goodbye to Drew at first uh, after the long phone call. And she says, aloha.
0: And he says, Aloha. Yes. Flash wa- forward 10 years. I wonder
1: how Cameron Crowe feels about it when he watches now. Is he like rubbing his hands as in, like, it all came <laughs> true according to plan? I knew back then. He knew everything. He knew that Elizabeth Town was going to be received poorly, and he was planting the seeds. I was like, you think this is bad? Wait until you see Aloha. You see what happens when I really make a bad movie instead of a complex movie that will confuse everybody.
0: Yeah, she's in town.
1: Obviously, she's been lying about
0: everything. Eventually, you know... She might not even be a stewardess at this point.
1: Maybe she was just another passenger dressed as a stewardess. You don't really know, because that flight was empty.
0: Yeah. So. So she says she's taking Drew out for the day. They go out and buy a big, nice urn for his father's ashes... And they go and visit the burial plot that is set aside for him in Elizabethtown. And it's still a point of contention amongst his family, his father's side of the family, as to whether or not he's going to be buried there in Elizabethtown or whether or not he will be cremated. It's during this time we find out, quick side note, that Ruckus... Paul Schneider, Cousin Jesse's band will be reuniting for Mitch's memorial. So that pays off in a huge way later on in the film. But this is where Drew just puts his foot down and says, damn it, my father's being cremated. It's up to me.
1: Yeah, there are a few moments throughout the movie where he comes alive. He's he's in this numb state, but there are a few times when people just drive him crazy and Orlando Bloom is allowed to come alive yeah <laughs> just kind of to remind you just i think to show you that no he he can act this is all you know he can look alive and he can be he can convey emotion and that's one of those moments and one moment is when he's with his mom on the phone and he's losing his patience with her mm-hmm. and then another one is where he puts his foot down and tells him that he's getting cremated and that's it yeah and notice that they're very subtly they have started the brainwashing process on him because he ends up Referring himself as uh, his family as being from California, yeah, even though for for the first chunk of the movie he keeps correcting them, Well, we don't live in California we haven't lived in California for in forever we 're from Oregon, and then when he puts his foot down, his lips and calls his family you know, cause yeah. that's that's how we do it in California or whatever
0: even though we 're from Oregon,
1: yes, so it 's already happening. that poor guy he went there and he says it's most vulnerable these These creeps are just getting his claws, their claws in him.
0: So he puts his foot down on the cremation issue, walks out of the room, and then he tames the wild beast as Samson, Jesse's kid, who just will never stop acting up. Drew just puts in a videotape that was called, like, listening, learning to pay attention with Rusty, and he just figures out how to calm all these children down, and all the elders are just in absolute disbelief.
1: I think that's another little breadcrumb that Cameron Crowe left there for people that couldn't figure out how creepy this family's supposed to be, that running sub-theme of brainwashing. This is... That tape that they put that calms Samson and all the other kids down, it's just basically this guy blowing shit up. He gets the kids to be quiet by saying, hey, do you promise to be be quiet and obey your parents, and then I'm going to blow up this house, and then that happens and the kids love it. That's mind control. Mm-hmm. And and it starts when they're little.
0: Later on in the evening, as Paula Dean is cooking what I can only presume is something with butter, Drew just has this flash in his head, and I guess the, the elders and the townspeople got their hooks in him because he just wants to stop the cremation. Yeah. He looks at the burning pilot light on the stove and just takes off, runs to the crematorium and just starts pounding on the wall to stop the cremation. It's too little too late, though. As nope. The young man working there brings out the urn that is probably still warm with his father's ashes. Does it say,
1: he's your dad, man? Yeah.
0: <laughs> this leads to another evening of time spent with Claire as Claire is able to meet Mitch and vice versa.
1: Oh, he finds Claire. This is, this is the thing with Claire. She's, obviously, Orlando Bloom has other stuff going on, mm-hmm. but she doesn't because she's, she's in a free fall. <laughs> she, I, I think we can infer from just having watched the movie if she was actually a, a stewardess, she probably quit her job after she met Orlando Bloom. She decided that Orlando Bloom was her last shot at just having a life and escaping the misery and the depression that she's been dealing with for I don't know how many years. So she quits her job, and her mission in life is just to hook up with Orlando Bloom and just hold on for dear life. So now she has all this free time, and that's that's clear, because she never goes to work again. Mm-hmm. Instead, when he gets back to the hotel, she's hanging out with the with the bridal party, Yeah, she's become best friends with everybody. She's drinking with them, and then she meets Mitch. And they just have this kind of long walk around the hotel. They get to the hall where they're having the reception, I guess, for the wedding. Yeah. And then she gets in the microphone. And it's like, this poor girl, she can't make it any clearer. Orlando Bloom is not picking up any signals. We've already had a, a moment previously in the movie where they almost kissed. And really, I mean, man up, Orlando Bloom, it was on you. Like, they're they're almost there, and he chooses not to kiss her, and then she gets tired of waiting, and then the magic's gone. Well, she gets tired enough this time that she goes up to the microphone uh, on the podium there, and she just tells him, I like you. And his response is just like, well, you shouldn't. Maybe we should go around. We should, you should go get some sleep or something. It's, it's heartbreaking because, I mean, the only thing that she could have done that would have been more, more clear would have been just saying, I need help. I'm about to kill myself. But instead, she kind of hoped that he, he would be attracted to her. But no, instead, he's so lost in his own grief that they end up just talking in circles about the relationship and the fact that, well, she has a boyfriend, kind of, and then they hook up, but it's not. It's not in the best of circumstances. You shouldn't need to watch a movie to learn this, guys, but hopefully this at least drove the point. Right after your father dies, that's not the best time to hook up with anyone, because you are (laughs) vulnerable, and especially not uh, somebody that's mentally unstable. Luckily, life finds a way, and, and, and everything turns out well for them, but I wouldn't recommend it.
0: They hook up, and the next morning, Claire awakes trying to just uh, do anything, obnoxiously so, to wake up Drew. And he's just, i like, don't know if she's wanting breakfast or... I think it's just attention.
1: But that's the thing. She needs to know it's real. She's, she's you know, determined to, to just fix her life through this guy.
0: She's craving this attention and just isn't getting it, so she just is like, all right, and leaves and gets in the elevator. And in one of the funniest moments of the film, the elevator door opens and both sides of the wedding party are down there, who already met her and know that it's the walk of shame on the highest degree. Yes,
1: and that is one of those moments where, like, I, I was telling you that you can see through the cracks, that is a great performance by Kirsten Dunst. I mean, she smiles through most of the Walk of Shame, but there's that half a second when she first realizes what's going on. The, the, the fakeness is not there. That's like the real Claire. She's like, fuck. <laughs> it's... It's very rewarding if you're paying attention to her performance.
0: Drew chases her out as she's starting to get into her car, and this is like the breakup for the relationship that never was. But it's also a very important part and a very pivotal part for Drew because it's when he finally verbalizes and expresses his regret and shame of his failure because all the other mention to it that the film has been through narration. And so this is where he finally just accepts it. Kind of his failure he hasn 't begun to compute his father 's death, but he accepts yeah his he
1: he finally I think verbalizing is a very good word he He really tells it to someone else he 's been keeping it inside for so long too, and of course, I think Claire just pays him back, you know she got on that microphone, told him that she liked him, and mm-hmm. he kind of shrugged it off and now he tells her you know this this, this huge news, this huge secret that he 's been keeping. And she kind of shrugs it off. Yeah, she's like that's all. I don't care. I don't care. It's sad, but that's those are the games that uh, people play.
0: She tells him, "I'll make it to Mitch's memorial if I can."
1: Then she also like kind of like gives him this side stab where she's like, "You keep trying to break up with me, even though we're not together." And then his faith falls. <laughs> <laughs> like we're not. And You just want them to get together already because they're so perfect for each other.
0: They would balance each other out. Yeah, yeah. So we go to Mitch's memorial where a bunch of people speak on their relationships with Mitch. We get our one and only black actor of the film, who just says some nice things about Mitch. It is a
1: Paladin's uh, contract.
0: And then Holly gets up there, Susan Sarandon, and it becomes improv comedy night, The Laugh Factory with Susan Sarandon. She just takes the mic off the stand and just starts, you know, talking about airplane food and everything that's wrong with kids today. What's the deal with funerals? <laughs> What's the deal with cults? She just explains all the things she's been doing since Mitch passed, and she does admit that she loves him, but a lot of what you said, she... Kind of says that like It's a new beginning of her life
1: Dude I, I just don't know How people miss this I mean she literally Dances on his grave <laughs> First off She makes a mockery Out of the whole ceremony Because she really does stand up it, It's not just I mean she really She says that she She started taking comedy classes And then she goes on And does like a bit And then She starts playing music And she starts tap dancing And those fools I mean it, it goes over Everybody's heads But she's really celebrating His death Yeah She dances on his grave It's amazing She's showing her kids This is how you fuck With these people
0: And everyone just goes crazy for it, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But it's 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 an awesome setup because of what happens later it's I think that this this whole memorial it's an excellent example of a subversion of uh, expectations uh, there's uh, what the characters expect which is uh the cold things that they've won. They got this this Californian to come in here and bow to their ways. Yeah. And instead, she upends everything. And then you get an amazing performance By the reunited... Ruckus. Ruckus.
0: As they're taking the stage, Claire shows back up, and she has, like, this big, almost Halliburton-looking briefcase of materials set up. Overnight, she planned this trip, this cross-country road trip, for Drew, and supplied up-to-the-minute music for it, so... If that 's not a cry for help, you know and
1: clear sign that she 's not obviously she didn 't sleep, she must be on some sort of drugs to just have all the energy that she 's had she's she 's at eleven the entire movie, and yet she 's never really tired.
0: The only thing like that would be more obvious is if he just went back home and she was already in his apartment in his favorite t-shirt <laughs> making him eggs. So she gives him this and says, this is going to guide you and this will tell you what to do and this will help you get through all this. And that's when the highlight of the film begins as Ruckus tunes up the band and begins playing Freebird in the final tribute to Mitch. And I, know,
1: it, I know you like Devil's Rejects. Oh, I do. But uh, there's no better use of Freebird than the way that they use it in this movie.
0: Much like devil's rejects with elizabeth town it's kind of that thing they get you in that like you think you're spent and you've gone through all you're going to and then they hit you with Freebird. well yeah because
1: there's also this subplot and even the, the choice of the song Freebird, this is about people being free from mitchell from him from the cult from all this shit they put him through and he, who is someone who's not free Jesse. Cousin Jesse who got stuck in Elizabeth who doesn't be able to escape. And this is his master plot. You think that he's just trying to relive his glory days. But he's also trying to get all these people killed. The way that it all works out oh there's an accident and and the prop that they're using during the song this this giant bird catches fire accidentally and it almost kills everyone. I think that was Jesse trying to escape like make a statement and just free his son from, from having to deal with this family for the rest of his life.
0: God always has a plan and in this it was to prohibit that from happening and the sprinklers come on But that, I think, also frees Jesse because he gets to have the rock star moment of his life where the sprinklers are raining down upon them and they still just keep playing and just nail Freebird out of the park. Yeah, yeah.
1: and there is, even if he didn't get them completely out of his life, I think that he showed them that he's not to be messed with. There's a shot where his dad is looking at him perform. I think some people might consider and confuse that. Oh, that's a look of pride. No, that's a look of respect. That's in, like... I get the point.
0: <laughs> I'm not going to fuck with you anymore. Raise you can, your son any way you exactly. want.
1: Exactly. You can raise Samson just as a rocker. I don't care.
0: The sprinklers are raining down and everyone's kind of freaking out. We get a cute little moment of the alleged stewardess, Kirsten Dunn, guiding everyone out like a stewardess would. It was a really great comedy moment and a part of just like emotional exhilaration. A lot of people are freaking out, but some people are just enjoying it in stride. Uh, Heather, the sister, just stands there like Jesus and just absorbs all of it. In one of the more quizzical shots of the film.
1: <laughs> I don't know what's quizzical
0: about that. <laughs> that Cameron Crowe thought it was good.
1: <laughs> she, was, she was a messed entire movie, and now she's like washed off her worries. She's just at peace.
0: Alright. Throughout the course of the movie, Drew had been speaking about how he's mastered the art of the last look. And he says the creme de la creme of last looks when he looks at... Claire, for what he believes to be the last time, and she leaves. They're and, both soaking wet. Oh, it's actually fantastic. She, she smiles, she shrugs. Then she, she laughs breaks. and yeah. leaves. We then go to the actual burial plot, where it's kind of the both sides one, because they're going to bury Mitch's favorite blue suit in a coffin in Elizabethtown, and then Drew is to take the ashes and do with them what... The, his side of the family wishes.
1: Yeah, I think that really we know who really won, and that was Susan Sarandon's side of the family. Susan Sarandon, Heather, Drew, they won, they fucked up the memorial with the help, with some help of Jesse, and then even, at, I'm pretty sure they sabotaged the crane that they're using to lower, lower the, the coffin because it messes up and it like drops it and then it gets stuck and then drops it again, and they're laughing. Everybody is shocked, but they're laughing. Yeah. I think that shows you that they're, they're responsible
0: for that. So we begin the road trip now. We're going from one side of the country to the other, from the east to the west. Drew opens up this elaborate, grandiose set of music and directions that was given to him by Claire and starts from CD1, one, track one. And this is just a cross-country journey, and you know, Claire's telling him where to stop and what to do and where to spread ashes of his father. Really, this montage is... Drew finally going through the five stages of grief, finally accepting his father's death.
1: And accepting his freedom. Mm-hmm. He's assimilating not just his father's death, but everything that he's gone through since he got to Elizabethtown. And he's just, you can see the realization hidden him. Oh, wow, these were horrible people, mm-hmm. and I am free. With the help of Claire, he, he can actually express all those things. There's a moment where he just... Steps out of the car and starts dancing, mm-hmm. because that's what you would do if,
0: if you were free. And he pulls over at one point to a newsstand and picks up the Business Journal magazine that's written about it. And I think that's when he finally gets over that, because he's like, well, this is the worst that it's going to get, and it's over. And then he realizes, fuck, my dad's gone. This is when he finally cries. He it, finally
1: cries. He's He's been talking to his dad throughout the trip yeah. to the urn.
0: In the montage, like I said, you can see he's angry, and then he's bargaining, and then you know he's uh, finally accepting but yeah, we finally get the Orlando Bloom tears that we had been waiting, what felt, at least three hours for.
1: It's it's a promise uh, that the movie delivers on.
0: And one of the things that he does say to his dad's ashes is, he said, and the fact that I'm still going to kill myself isn't your fault.
1: Because there's one key issue that hasn't been resolved yet, yes. which is, you know, he yeah he might be free from, from the cold, and he might, I guess he's accepted the fact that
0: he, he, he failed. failed, but... It like, doesn't change the fact that he still is gonna get on that bike and kill himself exactly. when he gets home. Which I think was a very bold move by Cameron Crow because you feel that you've hit the height of like your emotional happiness that you're going to in this. And then he brings you right back, he's like, No, real life ain't all sunshine and rainbows. He finally reaches the second largest flea market in the world, which is the last stop on his map that had been written to him by Claire. Gives him, like, step-by-step directions, which, again, I don't know how she knows all these places in the country that well. I guess she just has had a boyfriend in every city.
1: Well, she's a, she travels a lot. She's a Allegedly. She, allegedly. Well, she used to until she quit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but also, when you don't sleep and, and you don't have friends, you just you just learn all this stuff.
0: She's basically Liv Tyler's character from Empire Records, just a closet speed freak, and just has the energy to do all this all the time.
1: Yeah, that's, that's... She got to do a lot of stuff before her life started falling apart, before it caught up to her, and now it's up to Drew to rescue her.
0: And she says through her letter that this is the final fork in your journey, because I think with... Her being as mentally unstable as she is, she knows how to read someone else who's mentally unstable, and she very well may know that his plan is to just off himself when he gets home.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm pretty sure that if he, if they hadn't reunited at the end, she would have killed herself as well. I mean, she's also reaching the end of her journey.
0: The farmers market has the shoe, the big failed shoe, and she puts in it inside a note for him to look for a girl in a red hat. She says you can just go about and finish the journey the way you wanted to or, you know, come and find me and we'll take a new path together. A lot of people are wearing red hats, though, so it takes a while, but... Yeah, not the best plan,
1: but, you know, she did that whole map, she's probably just tired, she didn't think that, oh, maybe I should have used a different color, something that nobody wears. Teal,
0: or seafoam.
1: Yeah, seafoam hat.
0: But they embrace, and they kiss, and life is good, and you don't have the guarantee of a good future, but for now, both of them are very happy with their lives.
1: I think the only thing that you know is that if they end up actually killing themselves, at least they'll die together.
0: Romeo and Juliet.
1: Yeah, yeah, they'll... Maybe they'll buy another bike and then they'll just like they'll do the dual death by bike. The people that that hate this movie for the way it ends, or for the, I think they're missing the all the darkness around the, the real darkness not the darkness of like he just lost his dad, but no, the fact that he just lost his dad, he's grieving the loss of a horrible person. That is really dark stuff, really complex stuff. And it's not that oh, there's this quirky girl that saves him, no, there's this girl that also needs saving, there's this girl that has serious mental issues, and luckily. They happen to, to match each other in, in their needs.
0: They catch each other like the perfect time in each other's lives. Yes.
1: The end It's not a guaranteed happy ending. I, I give them a 50-50 chance that they still kill each other.
0: But the on-screen chemistry of Bloom and Dunst is just... It makes you happy.
1: It's still better than where they were before.
0: Yeah. They leave you with hope. Like I said, you don't really know, but... Th- and that's what this movie is about. It's about life coming from death with Susan Sarandon and people being able to like live a new life in the in the wake of a death. And also the unlikely hope that unexpected love can
1: bring—that is all we can ask for.
0: Because four hours ago when we started this, Orlando Boone was about to kill himself, and now you know he has something to live for, and that's not something you can shake a stick at. And Cameron Crowe knew this; he knew he was going to take us on this journey.
1: Pretty sure that he has a map for his life, the way that uh, Claire made a map for him. And there's, you know, page hundred is Elizabeth Town, and page seven hundred is uh, uh, we bought a zoo, and page two thousand is Aloha, and then the book ends. <laughs>
0: T-shirts, t-shirts, t-shirts. Hundreds of thousands of wrestling t-shirts. All for you to buy. Starring all of your favorite wrestlers. Daniel Bryan. Bret Hart goes to Montreal. Some dead guy. The Blackjacks. Mulligan and Lanza, not Wyndham and Bradshaw. <laughs> wrestling! SparksLikeUs.com. 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 Selling you wrestling t-shirts. Also available. Buttons, stickers, and kitty cats. Meow. Okay, so, Elizabeth Town, directed and written by Cameron Crowe, and as we did not know, leading into this, Tom Cruise was a producer on, interesting, was released on October 14th, 2005, we all thought it was much earlier than that, I thought it was like 2003 or 2002, budget of $45 million, box office gross of $52 million. how did that movie cost $45 million?
1: I'm telling you, along the bloom at the, at the peak of his career, uh... You know, he has to be expensive, and then, like you said, the soundtrack was probably not cheap.
0: I haven't seen Aloha or We Bought a Zoo, but from what I have seen of him, he knows how to fucking soundtrack a movie. Uh, box office at of $52 million, so, eh, uh, stands at 28% on Rotten Tomatoes, <laughs> which is kind of, I think, unfairly low. I think it's malicious. <laughs> I, think, I think people
1: just... I mean, okay, well, uh, let's get on out in the open. I actually like this movie. I've... I've I think I don't like it and then I watch it again. I was like, no, I actually quite like it. It uh it
0: becomes a part of you. <laughs> yeah,
1: it really gets into you. This is like that whole cult mentality, really like the, the the southern hospitality really gets in my head. Uh I and I like it a lot, but even if I understand that it might be too long. Well, let me let me read you the quotes of people that like it as okay. well first. Todd Gilchrist from IGN movies says if, as the film suggests, true greatness is defined by the willingness to fail, fail big, and still stick around afterwards, then consider Elizabethtown a sweet, melancholy pan to that sad truth. So that's kind of like a backhanded compliment. Yeah. Banger Daily News says, a warm and fuzzy parable about failure and redemption, life and death, love won and love lost, love hanging in the balance, and yet it doesn't hang itself well, not quite.
0: <laughs> again another,
1: you, know, it's like, you don't have to apologize for liking it yeah uh, Mike McGranigan from Isle Seat says a of the Town is a wonderful comedy slash drama about those moments in life when you get lost and have to find your way back again I think he got it and then Cheryl Dawson from TheMovieChecks.com it's rich and enjoyable not unlike a dessert served at a good old southern wake it may not work for everyone but for us the map of this film leads to a remarkable journey
0: the 2005 New Orleans of movies. <laughs> that was horrible, by the way. The, yeah, you, that was, you hadn't shared that one with me. That, that's just rude. Um, okay, so you like it. I will say this before we like really delve into much. I got more out of it watching it this time than I ever have before, and I think part of that's because when we watch these, it's like a different kind of microscope we put a film under to kind of break things apart. There are things that are good about it, there are things that are very bad about it. Let's go ahead and start with the acting, as this was the true end of the Orlando <laughs> Bloom experiment. This was like the final part where like, a lot of people were trying to make him a star, and then this was just kind of like, not gonna happen.
1: And then Because,
0: like I said, if fucking Cameron Crowe can get an Oscar-worthy performance out of Kate Hudson, he can get something out of anybody. And, Kate
1: Hudson is talented, she just doesn't pick good movies, it's, and Orlando Bloom...
0: In his defense, I think this was too much for him too soon because he was, still, <laughs> he was still pretty young and ripe and this is
1: no i I think it's a very complex character to play they're, The movie asks a lot of him and thankless role in a way because I do believe that he's meant to be muted you mm-hmm. know what I mean like it, it's you can't you compare him with other Cameron Crowe leads, and well yeah, they have a lot more to live for they have he, he is very a very passive protagonist. So there's a lot of him just reacting. And not just reacting, but he's reacting while grieving. Mm-hmm. He's depressed, he's the bottom of the barrel, and he's not a very active person. So, for him to be like more than what he is in the movie as a performer would almost take you out of the movie. I wouldn't buy him. I, I'm fine with his performance. I don't think it's memorable, but I think it's adequate. Yeah. I, I think that what bothers me, what, what really keeps me from fully embracing Elizabeth Townham to say that I love it like in you know proudly it's, it's more
0: Claire? Claire Kirsten Dunn's
1: <laughs> Kirsten Dunn's performance is 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 it has a little bit of that um,
0: is it her performance or is it the way the character's written?
1: It's both I, I actually I think that there's probably a better way of playing that character but in the end Cameron Crowe let her get away with those choices and it is true, like, you really see the cracks. When you see the cracks they're brilliant. Yeah. Because she's she's really playing this as a person, at least now that I watched it, it as a person that she's putting on this front for Drew and probably for everybody else, due to her job. Yeah. She's being like this perky and whatever. But there are moments in the movie where you see that go away and there's just she just looks tired or she looks concerned or she looks like she fucked up. Like the moment where she realizes this is the most obvious one, but the moment when she realizes that that Orlando Bloom's dad is dead.
0: Yeah,
1: and she gets serious. And she's like, "Oh, I fucked up." Yeah, that's that's good. And there's moments like that in the movie that make me wish that there was uh, there was more care in, in her character. You know, that she was rewarded a little better because in the end, when the movie ends, you end up remembering the really. The extra quirky parts, the yeah. fact that, oh, she was really loud and really happy. and
0: She suffers in this from what I now call, I guess this would be like retroactively, the Juno effect of like people don't really talk that way. What's the one line she has? It's like, some music requires air. Roll down a window. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, yeah, if this was like a movie, like a comedy based or fiction based, like fantasy film or something, that's what's like my thing with Juno, like the way she talks. You try to ground this film in like intense reality, but then this person is so unbelievably like cute and blossomy and bubbly. Yes,
1: but my defense to that would be that she is. Once you figure out that she's putting on a show, then it's like, well, of course she's not meant to sound realistic, but she's not realistic. The real Claire, we we don't really see her that much. Uh, Yeah, it still takes you out of the movie. I agree because that's one of the. Whenever I haven't liked the movie. I always go back to the Kirsten Dunst performance and just how annoying she is.
0: Yeah, and it's if it could be flushed out more, maybe I, I see exactly what you're saying. But I'm just saying for like the, the 123 minutes that we're constricted, and it just doesn't really work, and it doesn't build towards anything. Before I forget, yeah, that's another thing. The runtime it feels a lot longer than two hours.
1: That's uh, yeah, that's not a structural issue. I I think that. You expect it to be over, especially that the most clear ending you would think is right after they bury Mitch. Mm-hmm. But then you have the—I like the road trip, but it feels so like this long. extended epilogue. Yeah,
0: uh, it, and if, like you said, when we were watching it. I think it would have been like a much better ending if it really was the last time you saw her.
1: Because it's so poignant at, at mm-hmm. the end when—or not the end, but you know—at the end of the, the the memorial when he sees that was uh, that was uh, a last look that was uniquely clear. That would be awesome if that really wasn't. He can still have the road trip and hear her, but that was the last time he saw her, mm-hmm. maybe, you know? Uh,
0: Something I did not <laughs> remember watching it was that the plan all along is for him to still kill himself. I'd forgotten
1: he... that he was still planning to kill himself while he's in the road trip. Yeah. So I'd forgotten that.
0: And then yeah. he tells him, like, the fact that I'm killing myself is not your fault. I was just like, fuck, man. <laughs> That's like, for how almost just, like, slapstick some of those movies tried to be, it's like a heavy fucking line to nail home.
1: Yeah, there's... Uh, uh, I really like what the movie does. I guess I'm not crazy about the love story. Even if you took away the the quirkiness of, of Kirsten Dunn's character, if you made her like more, more palatable, yeah. I, think, I still think the love story would be the weakest element of it because really what gets me in Elizabeth Town is the story of the son going back to a family that doesn't really know him anymore and just having to deal with grief and dealing with this really close-knitted group and learning to... You know, getting his mom to just reunite with this family yeah. again—all that stuff—is I find it fascinating. I, I I have a big family, so the the dynamics of being in a big group uh, uh, where you're related to everybody—that yeah. rang very true to me. Yeah, and I
0: was, but I was going to say the same thing. That is one of the better elements of the film because I think both you are kind of both you and I are in a similar situation of like city living, live like kind of obviously not like an extravagant LA lifestyle, but live in Austin and. Live like a certain city type of way, but then you go back to visit family, and it's very like close and tight knit, and like almost a foreign concept, a foreign way of living to you. At yes, point. and
1: everybody wants to know what you're up to, and everybody has like this crazy idea of like the awesome things you're doing, and, yeah. and you're like, I fucked up a shoe.
0: They have a very unrealistic expectation of what your life is like elsewhere.
1: Totally offending our relatives right now.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm not saying yours. <laughs> Uh, no i 'm uh, not talking about us my friend
1: <laughs> my friend who lives in the big city <laughs> so yeah that that works and that's that 's at least half the movie. I think half the movies that kind of failed love story, and half the movie is about this guy dealing with the loss of his father and uh and this family and just embracing life again uh it's uh, I love that all that stuff works really well and on a on a lesser level, I think it also works uh the story of his journey you know, his crash and burn as, no. a, as an artist, I think that works too. Uh,
0: where does it fall apart really? Because I, I turned to you and I said this while we were watching it, between like, the way it's shot and the story at its core and the soundtrack, like I watch it and I think, this should be good. But where does it really fall apart? Is it Kirsten Dunst? I,
1: I think, and it's not her fault really, but I think that it's, there's a moment where the love story just starts just kind of bullshitting you around. Mm-hmm. Because there's, the, the phone call sequence is really good, and then, as quirky as it can be, it still rings very true. But then, when they get into the, the game of, like, does she really have a boyfriend? Does she not have a boyfriend? And they're just going back and forth. That about, feels I like something you. from I another like movie. You. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's not good. It, it really drags the movie down. I think you could have just cut through all that stuff and, and have her maybe not reappear until much later. I don't know. But it, but it I know that that's when I... I was getting tired of the movie. There's a
0: major pacing issue, too. We, we discussed that. Like, like that scene, yeah, that, that's a good example. And then a lot of the stuff with the family, like, because you deal with these heavy things of, like, he's about to kill himself, and then we meet these new characters, and then it just, like, slows down for, like, a really long period of time. And there's some stuff in there that's just, like, unnecessary. Like, Lewton Wainwright disciplining Paul Schneider about raising his son. It's just, like okay, like, this doesn't pay off in any way, shape, or form. But it so. does,
1: it does. I, it does because he really does give him a look when he's playing Freebird, when he's like, okay, I...
0: <laughs> it took you playing the greatest song <laughs> ever written, but...
1: <laughs> well, but, you know, he, you get the, the feeling that he doesn't respect him at all, and then suddenly he, he sees his son and everybody's, like, cheering for him, and he gives him the nod, which doesn't mean much as far as parenting. Doesn't mean that he's saying, okay, now you can raise your kid any way you want, but at least there's that connection then you didn't think that they had early in the movie. I, I don't mind the slow pacing with the family mm-hmm. uh, stuff because I found that interesting. The problem with the slow pacing with them and the Kirsten Dunst scenes is that I don't care. Yeah. There's really... There was enough cutesy stuff in the phone call. I don't need any more for the rest of the movie. And there's just long sequences of them just just being cute with each other and talking in circles about the relationship. And that that's just boring. I, I think that's the problem.
0: Back to Cousin Jesse, always great to see Paul Schneider.
1: Yes. I'll, he, I didn't know him as Paul Schneider back then. Yeah. I, I think I actually thought he was... Uh, oh, I don't remember the name of the guy, but it's the guy that... He's one of the Hobbits, and he is... Uh,
0: Sean Astin?
1: No. No, one of the, the Hobbits in the
0: way he remembers. He was in Lost. Uh, oh, the cat from... He's in X-Men Origins Wolverine. He is? He plays the, the mind control guy... That Liz Schreiber kills. Really? And, yeah, and he says, "I'm not afraid to die." And he says, "How do you know? You never tried it." No, <laughs> I'm sorry, that movie's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that movie's terrible, man. Uh, uh, but I thought it
1: was him, and then and then I I don't think, think it was until like Parks and Rec when I realized, oh, Paul Schneider is the, yeah this guy. Bernadette is in Elizabeth Town.
0: <laughs> and you could almost attribute this, or theory, or make a theory out of it, like my love of Freebird. That, like, my whole love of Devil's Rejects, when it gets to the Freebird part of the movie, when they're playing, I'm like, fuck yeah, and I'm, like, all happy. and <laughs> You then forget movie,
1: about everything Yeah, else. and
0: then the movie keeps going and reminding me why I didn't like it, whereas Devil's Rejects ends with Freebird, so, like, <laughs> I'm just so amped when it's over. But, God, yeah, that scene's really cool. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff. That's the thing. When I think back of Elizabethtown,
1: and I start defending it, because it's, it's usually, you know, somebody's talking shit about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, there's a lot of stuff that I can point out and say but this is great and this is great and this is great you know the way that he reacts with Father's Day is, is awesome and then the whole thing with Susan Saranda I think is great and, and Freebird and, uh, and the phone call and the road trip there's a lot of really cool stuff that somehow yeah it fails to add up to a great movie it,
0: <laughs> yeah and that, like that's really what I come away with if I did like a one line review of this it should be great but it's not like it, for a multitude of reasons that None of which are, like, colossal. There's not any massive plot holes, but there's a bunch of things that add up and really deter away from what good it does.
1: Yeah, and the other line that I always used was just, I would just say, it's all Kirsten Dunst's fault. I, I would just go back, except that I've this I've been time, saying that about Jumanji for years, man. <laughs> I watched it this time, and this is the first time since probably the first time I watched it where I really appreciated her performance. And so now I can't say that. Mm-hmm. Now I just have to say that, well, the relationship aspect doesn't work, but it's not Kirsten Dunst's fault. And the other thing I would say is just, I did watch Aloha and We Bought a Zoo, and th- th- I'm not kidding, this is the last time that he was good. I mean, We Bought a Zoo is just kind of like, it's like a, a paycheck, feels like, I don't know if he had some sort of special connection with the material that did come through.
0: The Undertaker came to watch We Bought a Zoo.
1: <laughs> There's nothing else out. <laughs> uh, and Aloha, it just seems like it was done by a completely different person. I I don't get
0: so I remember like when I heard about it a couple years ago you know on IMDb untitled Cameron Crowe project Cameron Crowe we'll go ahead and get it through Jerry Maguire almost famous has done enough goodwill with me to like last him like forever like that type of thing Uh, so I was like yeah Emma Stone and Bradley Cooper like the two most likable people in the world (laughs) and I watched the trailer for it and I went oh no oh no
1: I I actually I watched the trailer and I was fine with it because all they had me at Cameron (laughs) Crowe But then you watch the movie... and I'm I was afraid to
0: watch it, especially because you and me, like, we'll disagree about certain movies, but we usually always have a common ground of understanding film, and when you just told me it was a disaster, I was like, oh no.
1: It's just bad. It's not just bad, but it just makes you feel bad, because you're like, what happened? Yeah. I, I, I'm sure there's a lot of just behind-the-scenes stuff that really messes things up for him there, because there's no explanation other than that, or he just... I mean, I... I, I he was the film spotting guys where they were just like, he lost his voice. <laughs> it's like, that is horrible. That's horrifying that that could just happen to someone that's talented and then suddenly one day they just completely forget how to make a movie. It, it's almost that bad.
0: I think, going back to Elizabethtown now, time has been more kind to it, but I always regarded it as kind of his downfall. Like, now, with what you've said about We Bought a Zoo and um, Aloha, is there a director that's ever had a history of making, like, because well, Vanilla Sky, we found out, both to both our surprises, is mixed regarded. It was like at 40-something on Rotten Tomato.
1: Yeah, that, that's...
0: But Which again, I think it's awesome.
1: I, I, I like it, too. I like it, too. I, I don't know what the deal was with Vanilla Sky, but you could almost say, if you wanted to excuse it, it's like, well, it wasn't an original. Yeah. You know, but then we bought a zoo was a, a book adaptation, too, so I don't know.
0: But then you have Almost Famous, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, and Jerry Maguire, which is one of the most universally beloved movies from the 90s. Is it, And then Say Anything, of course. Has there ever been a director that's done this with their career, made, like, great, seminal, poignant films, and then just had, like, this stark decline?
1: I just now thought of this, but, I mean, I'm sure if you go through Spielberg's filmography, I think he had a rough patch. Uh, I, I, and, and I haven't seen the movies in the rough patch, because I remember... Uh, Lincoln? No, Lincoln. <laughs> that, was, that was his already in the upswing. No, there was, like, that... He came back with uh, Schlindrod's List and Jurassic Park in 93, I think. They were mm-hmm. both in the same year. And I remember his Oscar acceptance speech was, like, this is a, a drink of water after a long time of being thirsty, I don't no. know, it was more poetic than that, I think, but, but that was the idea, <laughs> that he'd been, he'd been fucked for several years, and then he finally got it back, and I don't remember which movies, are the, but it's probably when he did... Uh,
0: Robert right. Zemeckis, maybe, too, had, like, Polar Express, which a lot of people didn't like, and... Oh, but Polar Express became a classic, I guess you could say... And, and then <laughs> Beowulf, which was just, like, shredded, which I, I didn't mind it, but... But yeah, no, I don't think ever to this extent.
1: To where like critics are wondering if, what the fuck if he, happened if he, just, if he just lost it yeah. completely. Uh, yeah, probably not. I don't know. It's it's sad, and it's still I'll watch the next thing he does. Uh, yeah,
0: like I said, he's built up that much goodwill with me. This, I think, I am shocked to say this because I fought it passionately because I like had so much disdain for this movie, even though I own it. Like I bought it for a dollar at a goodwill once. I bought it. I was explaining to my sister. I said. I looked at it and I said, "There's no way this is as bad as I remembered it." And I will, I will spare a dollar. And then I watched it and was like, "Yes, it is." But I don't know if it's just because we've watched so many bad movies doing this uh, to where I almost appreciate like ambitious films like this from time to time. But
1: well, it's like you said halfway through the movie, you were like, "There's a lot of goodwill in this movie." I think that wins you over. Yeah, and, and maybe you're older now than uh, than last time you watched it, and there is something at some point that really connects you to someone's grief when it's portrayed. Authentically, and I think that they do nail that part at least in the movie. The grieving is it feels real, movie real, but still real, yeah.
0: And then, like I was saying in the first portion, the glasses I put on to watch movies for like the contrarians, like our whole gimmick thing, are a lot different. And then, so doing the movies we had like, watching Paul Blart and just, like, how fucking mean-spirited that movie is and then how much money it made. And, like, watching this, I'm like, okay, yeah, it doesn't work, but that's because, like, the people making it were kind of taking chances and, like, trying something. They get mixed up for something. And then, like, the cherry on top of the average Sunday is, like, what we were talking about before, how history has kind of inverted things, because when this came out, like it was buried as like the wannabe Garden State, and everyone loved Garden State, <laughs> yes. and now fucking everyone, which I'm old school hating Garden State, man, <laughs> I, I, I hated that the first time I saw it, I was like, fuck that movie, and... I, I'm not,
1: I'm, I'm, I'm the, the other kind, would, would that make me a hipster? I liked it when it came out, and then I turned on it. Uh, Why'd you turn on it? Because I can't, it's just that the Kirsten Dunst character what she's accused of that's the entire movie in Garden State everybody's fucking quirky and and just very like so special and they listen to the, this music and they just behave and they're the scene like, that's in a that, movie that the doesn't... scene
0: in that where like Natalie Portman is talking about how she likes to make noises that no one else ever yes. that yeah. like I had to watch that with my fingers <laughs> over my eyes it was so fucking bad
1: uh, it might be just because of how much I like Natalie Portman but when I first saw that movie I just loved it I was like oh this is awesome it's, yeah. it's so funny and, and then I uh, subsequent viewings. The last time I caught it, I just caught a chunk of it on TV and I couldn't finish it. It was just so bad.
0: Yeah. Uh, Not to say Elizabethtown has this big, like, beloved reputation now, but I think people are more kind to it these days. The yeah, market. well, I'll
1: take Kirsten Dunst in Elizabethtown over Natalie Portman in, uh, in Garden State. And despite the day.
0: fact that he hasn't really submerged from underwater since, I will take Orlando Bloom over Zach Braff any <laughs> day of the week. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, he is. He's in the the new Hobbit movies. They gave him a part. They threw him a bone.
0: I remember. I may have come to you when we got the trailer in for the 3D Three Musketeers, and when I saw he was in it, I felt like genuinely bad. Like
1: it wasn't like yeah, it wasn't like a
0: like my like uh, poor you know Robert De Niro having to be in Meet the Parents. It wasn't like because I know he's going to make a hundred million dollars or whatever from doing that. When I saw Orlando Bloom in the 3D Three Musketeers, I was like, man, what what happened? It's like Mickey Rourke in like the late 90s to early 2000s. He didn't recover from this, and I, I would wonder if that's because people lost faith in him and his ability to be a leading man, because the movie didn't really critically or financially succeed. Uh, I think so. I think that out of uh,
1: everybody else in that movie, he was the only one that didn't have a body of work that he could fall back on. And people, You know, Cameron Crowe is like, oh, he... he he failed, but look at all these other movies that he had. He, I mean, he had what? what? He, uh, like Lord Pirates of the, of the Caribbean
0: and Lord of the Rings were like... Oh, but did he do Pirates after Elizabethtown, or was that like... I'm pretty sure the first you know, one came out before. Yeah, yeah, the first one I think came out in 2004. I
1: think he finished spending, spending whatever goodwill he had with, with the audience, with the Pirate movies. I, I have he, heard
0: too, he's difficult to work with. Oh, is he? Yeah.
1: I don't know, I heard that he punched Justin Bieber, or did Justin Bieber punch him. Or was it I, really, Buff? I don't know, there was like some sort of celebrity <laughs> scandal that he was involved in, and he came out on top as in, like, everybody's on his side.
0: Good. In either of those cases, he should be.
1: I don't think he's a bad actor, I just don't think that he's had any other chances. I mean, he was in, uh, oh, that's another bomb that he was in, uh, Kingdom of Heaven. He Mm -hmm. was also carrying that movie, and that's...
0: Oh, I forgot about that, yeah.
1: That's... I mean, again, that was Ridley Scott, and uh, Ridley Scott survived, but I think that might have been the final nail in the coffin, actually, uh, Kingdom of Heaven.
0: Yeah, as far as Cameron Crowe goes, everyone just kind of wrote it off. Okay, everyone can swing it. Well, yeah, and and Kirsten Dunst
1: also had, like, the... Body of work of oh well we've seen her in so many things it's not her obviously it's Orlando Bloom how dare he try to be a leading man he's supposed to be just the second banana to to the the hobbits
0: and he like for some reason I remember him being bad but he's not it's just he chose to take on that character like differently than because it doesn't quite mesh up with all the other performances but it doesn't mean he's bad yeah. I didn't like laugh at him at any point he was just
1: he was just asked to keep his emotions very contained that's why it works when he lets it out every now and then when he yells at people it's because oh well he's just wound up so tightly and and yeah the fact that he has a death wish through the entire movie it's it's playing into that people just don't get it Uh, you were talking about the, the fact that you own this movie I've owned this movie three times because I used to own it and then uh, I lost it in the breakup. You know, we split the movies, and Elizabeth Town left my life. So then, when I next time I saw it, I bought it, and then I found out I realized I bought it in full screen. And now, there's no way. I, even if it's Elizabeth Town, it can't be full screen. So, so I gave away the full screen copy as a present, somewhat, and then I went and bought it in widescreen. So I went through a lot of of work to just have Elizabeth Town in my collection. Uh, even at moments where I've liked it the least, I still wanted to own it. So it has to say something about how I feel about it.
0: There was a girl that really liked Garden State that, like, left it. Red flag. At, <laughs> yeah, it left it at my place, and I made sure, like, no, you take this. <laughs> I don't want this in my collection. Why, who would own Elizabethtown on full screen? <laughs> who would want that? And they're like... You then get to appreciate it. <laughs> 28%, like... As shocked as I am, your battering of me to watch this has worked because I came away with it with a refreshed view of what I once had for it. And I can safely say that 28% is, like, mean. It's mean.
1: It's really people hating on Orlando Bloom more than anything.
0: What uh, would you give it? I wouldn't say, like, uh, I'd probably say, like, 70, like, a a good C. There's goodwill in there, and, like, there's legitimate effort put forth, and considering some of the fucking dribble that we've sat through for these, like, negative bad quote unquote, bad movie episodes, this was like a breath of fresh air. It's like, hey, this ain't that bad. Yeah,
1: I'm I'm a little higher, probably 75, even 80, depending. Now I'm just, I'm so confused because I was not expecting to enjoy it so much. I knew I was going to enjoy moments of it, but I've I've come away from this last viewing very, very much on the side of the movie, so, uh, which is good. Part of it might have been that I just, having watched Aloha, I, I don't know, I just appreciate a lot more for like, oh, this is when he's, the master of, of, of his craft. Of his domain. Yeah.
0: Oh, last one. That review that we started with, where she called it narcissistic. I know Cameron Crowe tries to always base m- a lot of his material off real life experiences and I think this was like what he wrote about coping with his dad's death. I wouldn't consider it narcissistic at all.
1: It's it's a story worth telling. You know, I know what we're... I would consider
0: narcissistic? A Judd Apatow film where he puts his <laughs> wife and his kids in it and films <laughs> with Paul Rudd playing the Judd Aptow character. <laughs>
1: No, I, yeah, I don't think so. I think that there's uh, the difference. Uh, I don't want to get into the whole chat about <laughs> But I think the difference is that there's. I think that it's about grief. It's not just about Orlando Bloom grieving. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where it's like something like This is 40, it's about those two characters very specifically. And that's why it feels annoying. Yeah. It's like we don't need to know about your life. We want to know about the crisis of, you know, being that age. Whereas. You know what I mean? They both
0: feel really long. <laughs> and this is 40's case; it is really long. Yeah.
1: Well, there's also like all the other stuff because I'm sure that if it was shorter and it, I don't know,
0: maybe that'll be the next one. We'll watch that and I'll come away with it with a invigorated <laughs> we'll both, view. Yeah. We'll both love
1: it. <laughs> God, we're just closer to forty, and that's why.
0: <laughs> so, episode sixteen, we were going down the list, and we are going to tackle the 2008. Is that what came out? I forgot what we agreed on. <laughs> <laughs> Slumdog Millionaire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the 2008 Danny Boyle Best Picture winner.
1: Oscar Darling.
0: Yeah, which that's the definition of a cute movie right there.
1: <laughs> Before Avengers. Before Avengers, the slum there was. Slumdog was cute.
0: Yeah. So that will be episode 16. Be sure to check us out on iTunes. We're the Contrarians, not the Contrarians podcast. Rate, review, subscribe. Uh, check us out on SoundCloud. You can follow us on there. Download episodes, listen to them, leave comments.
1: Uh, we have a website. It's wearethecontrarians.com. You can also listen to podcasts there and, I guess, look at pictures.
0: We have our email address, which is wearethecontrarians at gmail.com. Um, you know, send us love, hate mail. If you, like, really hate Elizabethtown, we welcome any arguments.
1: And if you really love it, <laughs> We welcome any arguments. <laughs> yeah. I, I told her I was going to embarrass her on air. Our friend Elena just uh, got accepted into UT And I said, hey, we'll give you a (laughs) shout-out. And she said, no, please.
0: And I said, oh, now it's happening. (laughs) Now it's definitely happening. So congratulations on that one. Uh, She's also a listener. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. (laughs) (laughs) So that will do it for this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians. On your way out, be sure to swing over to youtube.com backslash ovniofilms. That's O-V-N-I-O films. And check out The New Adventures of Baby Jesus, a web series created and written by The Contrarians' very own Julio Oliveira. I didn't even see Amazing Spider-Man 2. It's so bad.
1: It's it's, it's (laughs) infuriatingly bad, especially because there's like... The death of Gwen Stacy in the comics is like one of those iconic Spider-Man history moments. Yeah. And what angers me even more on top of the movie in Bad is that it uses that moment, you know, it, it takes that plot point and it's almost like, well, yeah, no matter how inept you are, it's extremely hard. You have to really be trying actively to fuck it up, to fuck up that moment. So even though your movie's shit, if you end with the death of Gwen Stacy the way that it happens in the comics, People can be fooled into thinking, "Oh, the movie's good because I felt something." It's like, no, you felt something in spite of the movie being so bad because the comic story is so good. You know, like Peter's fighting the Green Goblin and Gwen's life's in the balance, and then she falls, and he tries to save her, and he thinks he saved her, but she's dead already. That's like really awesome stuff, and uh, and he pulls that off. Like, so there's like 30 seconds of the movie that work. And <laughs> the rest is just so bad. God.